0: Romans 10, verse 4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Father, we ask now for your gracious help and assistance spiritually, Lord, as we have come to this place and drawn near to you, we ask that you would draw near to us, specifically now through your word. Just even ask uniquely for just mental alertness, Lord, as our bodies have lost an hour of sleep. We, we pray just quicken us by your spirit that we could be alert and attentive and that we could have receptive soil in our hearts to receive your word, that it would be planted within us and that it would bear the fruit that you intend in our lives. Speak to us, Lord, through the power and the personal ministry of your spirit that we might know this day that we hear and have heard you speaking to us and that we could be responsive to what you're saying. Bless your word and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You ever heard it perhaps said before to someone else, or maybe you have said it yourself, don't make this more complicated than what it needs to be. Don't make this more complicated than what it needs to be. I believe really that may be God's word sometimes to humanity, specifically in relation to things that matter like the forgiveness of our sin Access into heaven after we die, and having a simple, sincere relationship with God. And this may just be one of the best passages where God is trying to communicate that reality. Don't make this more complicated than what. It needs to be. Remember, our background prior to these texts is Paul has been discussing his spiritual concern for his countrymen, the people of Israel. Paul himself was a Jew and he has been expressing his great burden for Israel that they may be saved and even the error and problems specifically of trying to, through their works, to provide or supply their own righteousness unto God as being sufficient for God to then accept them on those grounds and give them access into heaven after they die versus receiving, not providing, but receiving God's righteousness that he himself supplies to us by our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's a righteousness that God supplies to make us, in a sense, acceptable in His sight. In other words, rather than showing up in your own garments and saying, Can I get in to this exclusive place where there's a, a high level dress code and showing up in your own garments, which are utterly insufficient and below standard, instead having the proper garments and attire that are necessary to be exclusively allowed into a place that has this superior dress code and, and this is the idea of trying to say hey god let me into heaven here i, I got some righteousness don't i, I mean compared to that guy or compared to those people and, what, and and god i'm doing these things and i'm not doing those things and saying god here's my righteousness through my religious works or my somewhat good behavior on occasion instead saying god i have nothing to offer i am filthy on my best day My best performance is like filthy rags. I need you to clothe me. I need you to robe me in your righteousness that you supply through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3, if we can. Again, this is the, the, the basis of where Paul has taken his thoughts we're looking at this morning from. Regarding Israel, he says, for they being, look, ignorant of god's righteousness a righteousness god supplies and seeking to establish or offer to god their own righteousness they've not submitted to the righteousness of god this is the error this is the problem this is the extreme issue of people who fall into the trappings of a religious lifestyle And a religious system, and and this is a, a sincere, naive mistake that many people make is in the midst of following a religious system that maybe they were taught and exposed that this is just the way that you do it. People try through religious ordinances and efforts and X many classes and baptisms and church attendances and saying this and praying. And they think, hey, that's if you just have enough of that or you meet this criteria, then that's when then God accepts you. And and that's providing and trying to establish your own righteousness. And God says the danger of that is you then never submit to the righteousness that God has to supply to make you acceptable in His sight as a holy God to enter into heaven. And it truly is an issue of submitting to that because it takes a a humility and a submissiveness in a person's spirit to say, you know what, I need to forsake every effort I could possibly make religiously to get myself right with God, and I need to say, God, save me. You have to save me because I can't save myself. I can't make myself right and acceptable. And that really takes an issue of submission in the human heart. So the question becomes this as we go into verse 4. How does one stop trying to establish and offer their own righteousness and instead submit to the righteousness that God must supply for us to make us right with God and to make us acceptable? Well, Paul says, verse 4, for Christ is the end of... Of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the answer is this when we let go of trying to keep the law and we instead look to Jesus Christ for spiritual deliverance, then that is beginning to bring us to that place where we understand how God makes us right with Him. When we let go of the law and we look to Jesus Christ. Now listen, granted, the Mosaic law and its moral principles are still good and holy. Paul mentioned that back in Romans 7. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. In fact, many of the truths and commands we find all throughout the Old Testament and Mosaic law, many of them, their truths, are repeated in the New Testament as well. It's still wrong to steal. Last time I checked. It's still wrong to lie. Adultery is still wrong. So many of the truths of the law are repeated in the New Testament, yet keeping the religious and righteous requirements of the mosaic law the bible still makes very clear to us is not something that can bring us into a right relationship with god even if we honored it to the to a, a very high level of degree no one ever fulfills it completely we all still miss the standard we all fall short of that righteous requirement the law was intended to be as paul saying a pathway to guide and direct us ultimately to salvation in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians regarding this. Galatians 3.24 says, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. What does a tutor do? A tutor helps someone to understand something that they're not grasping themselves, to help show and direct them into what is a proper way to understand. So he says, the law was like a tutor like a guide to point us and bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor anymore, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, all the spiritual privileges that God gave to the Jews, we saw them back in chapter 9, the law, the prophets, The ordinances, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all of those things pointed to the coming of the Messiah. They all spoke typologically that there is a Savior that is coming. It all pointed like a road sign to the Messiah. The law showed them they were sinners in need of salvation. And the law sought to bring them to a place whereby they then realized their sinfulness and looked to Christ For that salvation, the error that the Jews made religiously, historically, is instead they wrongly began to worship their law as a system and instead they rejected the Savior that God sent. And this is a mistake that people can make even to this day. That law was a signpost pointing the way to Jesus, which was the ultimate destination because Jesus provided what the law could not for them. But once they came into an understanding of their need of faith in Jesus as the path of salvation, Paul's saying here in verse 4, that was when the law completed its role. Once it brought a person to Christ, that was the culmination point that they would now relate to God through the person of Jesus. That's what he's saying here, verse 4, where he says Christ is the end. The term there literally is the goal, the culminating point, the conclusion of something. The point Paul's trying to make in verse 4 here is obedience to the law is no longer the way to relate to or relate to in a sense, and respond to God. But instead, it's now to be through Jesus Christ, through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, what did Jesus say? He said, I did not come to abolish, the idea is destroy or eliminate the law, but he said, I came to fulfill it. Again, the fulfillment of Jesus Christ was found, that was what the fulfillment of the law became when Jesus came and lived out what he did. And and we have to always recognize and remember this. Again, the law was intended to set a standard. But that standard of righteousness was intended to be something for people to measure their condition spiritually and to realize, I can't keep that standard. I keep failing. I keep missing. I'm guilty. Every time I look at that standard, I realize, I'm guilty. I'm a lawbreaker. Now the law is doing its job because now I feel guilt. And I realize, oh no, if I'm a lawbreaker, I deserve punishment. That law also says that I should be punished for my guilt. Somebody's got to help me with my my guilt. Something has to help me with the punishment that I'm going to experience. So Jesus came as the Savior. And here's the glorious thing. The Bible says he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He satisfied what God requires through his sinless life that you and I don't live out in our sinfulness. He is a man in humanity as our representative being fully God and fully man, fulfilled perfectly, sinlessly the righteous requirements of the law. So God's satisfied. God's fully satisfied in what Jesus has done. And if we look to Jesus as our mediator and our representative in faith, God says, I'm satisfied because I'm fully fulfilled in what you have have trusted in and what my son has already provided. And that's why he says that righteousness is available through Christ to anyone who believes. But again, that belief can't be in ourselves. That belief can't be in a religious system. You know, I'm a, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Calvary Chapelite. It it can't be in a system. Can't be in a church. It can't be in a priest or a pastor because they didn't die for your sins it must be in jesus and when that belief is in jesus god offers his righteousness you know it's interesting in jesus's day when you read the gospels you see how the religious leaders in israel had really began to complicate spiritual life beyond just the commands of the law they had added hundreds hundreds of additional traditions and rules and regulations and things, what we refer to today as the Mishnah and the Talmud. And because of that, the Jewish people were so burdened with these unrealistic standards of spiritual life that the religious leaders in that day had made living for God so complicated, so difficult, that the people in that day in Israel were spiritually exhausted. They would look at the Mishnah and the Talmud and all the traditions and regulations of the whole system. That is, that is so complicated. It's so exhausting to try and have a relationship with God. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 11 in relation to that reality. Jesus said, Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden with what? Physical work? No. Religious traditions and efforts of a system that wearies the soul of a person that thinks, I've got to do that and this and this and that. Man, this is complicated to have a relationship with God. And Jesus said, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. He said, I will give you rest. And he said, you'll find rest for your soul. An inward rest. A rest that takes away the restlessness of a person who is agitated because they sense, I'm trying so hard and I still know I'm not right with God. I can just sense it inside. And Jesus said, come to me, I'll resolve that and take that burden away from you. Now, verse five, Paul goes on to say, for Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law, saying the man who does those things shall live by them. So Paul reminds them how Moses in the Old Testament spoke to Israel, saying to them that the way they could stay in right relationship with God was through observance or sort of doing what the law says as it was being given. What Paul's doing here in verse 5 is quoting from Leviticus 18, verse 5, where God said that those who do those things shall live by those things. The idea here simply is this, is the idea being those who do or follow what the law declares also choose to embrace the law as their standard to then be held to and measured by. Those who do those things shall live by those things. So when you chose to embrace the law as your standard, you were embracing that as the standard of righteousness that you had to live up to and you had to fulfill in a sense. The problem, of course, is obvious, is that's a very difficult set of requirements to observe and fulfill. And people were never able to do that. No one could follow that perfectly without violation. And it just takes one violation to make you guilty. Listen to what James says in chapter 2 regarding the law, James two ten and 11. He says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So James says, imagine that, your whole life, you're doing so good. You're fulfilling everything. I mean, you are diehard, radical, committed, better than anyone's ever been, and you're doing so good. You're, you're honoring it, going to all the feasts, every... Every little social ordinance, you're honoring it perfectly, and then in your last dying breath, you're 95 years old, and somebody comes in the room on your deathbed and says something that has been irritating you for years, and you finally lose your temper with them and say something, and you, and you sin against God. Oh, after 95 years of effort, and I'm guilty now because see the reality is, is how many laws does it take to break to become a lawbreaker? One. You break the law civilly one time, one law, you're a law breaker. Same is true spiritually. You can be, in essence, perfect for 99.9% of your entire life. Never break one of God's laws, never sin one time, but if you fail one time, you're guilty. You're a law breaker. And this is what God is trying to say. It's so difficult, therefore, to try and live with the law as your standard of righteousness. That's impossibility. That's such great pressure. Paul says, however, but, and that's an important word there, verse 6, but, because he's now going to give a contrast of what's available instead by faith, that's freely received by belief and faith, not performance and effort, but the righteousness becoming right with God of faith. Speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. So wanting here to describe how to become righteous with God by faith, Paul alludes here in verses 6 through 8 to some select phrases from deuteronomy chapter 30 now let me just read you the passage he's quoting from to set it into your mind and we'll talk a little bit about this deuteronomy 30 paul or uh, moses was declaring this moses said for this commandment which i command you today is not too mysterious for you nor is it far off it's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Now in that passage in Deuteronomy 30, what Moses was doing was emphasizing to the people how God was never trying ever to make spiritual life complicated. God was never trying to make it difficult to relate to him. God never intended for himself or spiritual life to be mysterious or confusing or so esoteric and mysterious that, that only certain people could attain to it and grasp it or plumb the depths of the great mysteries of spiritual life. God revealed clear truth, Moses is trying to say. look, he, he was never trying to make it mysterious. He revealed clear truth to them, even in the Mosaic law, it was easily understood, it was available and accessible for anyone to grasp it, understand it, and to respond to it in obedience. Thus, even as Israel, Paul's trying to allude to now, had a clear word from God, They didn't have to go up to heaven and search how to be right with God or descend to the lowest parts of the earth to go look for answers. It was right there, put in front of them. That's what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy 30. Paul now draws from this and says, look, in the same manner, the simple truth of salvation through Jesus Christ is just as available, accessible, and simple to grasp and understand. Paul, again, Jesus, the Bible says, is the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews says, In times past, God spoke to our fathers at various times and in various ways, but in the last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. In other words, Jesus is the clearest communication God has ever given. God came and showed up in a body of flesh and made it so evident and so obvious, look, I can't make it more accessible and clear. Here I am. I'm right here before your eyes. I'm, I'm right in front of you. And what Paul's trying to indicate is how even in Deuteronomy 30, and this is what astonishes me about Paul the Apostle, his grasp of the Scriptures and, and spiritual insight and sensitivity to the Word of God, the things he mined out of us, is how Paul saw allusions and applications to Christ in, 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 and the person of Jesus in so many places the law he'd read a passage and say you know, you know that's kind of like and, and he would see an allusion to Jesus and an application and that's what Paul's doing here again in verse 6 he's reflecting upon the reality of the incarnation if you take note he says don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down That's the incarnation that God, the father sent his son, Jesus Christ down to this earth. So Paul says, look, God came from heaven and became a man. So don't say, how can we work up and ascend our way up into heaven and and bring God down to our level? Paul's saying that already happened. Don't say, how are we going to do this? Who's going to accomplish what we need to bring down a Savior, ascending up into heaven, bringing the Messiah and the Savior down to us? And why is Paul saying don't say that? Because us trying to ascend up into heaven and bring God down to us is religion. That's religion. Religion, even in its original understanding, the term Relingary means to relink. The idea is Human beings trying to reconnect with God, trying to reach up to God because they realize they're separated somehow, so they're trying to reach up and reconnect with God somehow. Listen, that's counter-scriptural. The Bible says the opposite happened and Jesus' coming indicated that. We don't have to reach up to God. God already reached down to us. He initiated in love. God, the Father, sent Jesus as a Savior. Jesus descended to us. Jesus revealed God to us. God came in flesh through the person of His Son to make Himself available to us and to provide what He did. Verse 7, Paul says, Or who will ascend up into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Or, excuse me, descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. There, Paul, I think, is reflecting upon clearly the death and resurrection of Christ. Because here, as he talks about this, he's reminding us that Christ has already died and paid for sin's penalties. And Paul says, look, don't say who's going to bring him up from the dead. He's already risen from the dead, Paul's saying. Nobody needs to go get him and help him finish the process of salvation he says, nobody needs to go and, and descend into the, the lowest parts of the earth. The term abyss there, that's the idea of that term. It's an allusion to the lowest parts of the earth. Paul says, don't say who's going to descend and, and bring Messiah back from the dead for us. Why? Because Jesus already did that by his own power. He didn't need any help to do that. Listen to Jesus' words in John 10 when he declared that. Jesus said, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Again, if you notice in verse 6 and 7, who will, who will, what Paul's doing is reproving this idea that human beings need to do something, or that we could do something that actually would contribute to the process of salvation and somehow help God out to make us become right with him. Paul's saying, don't say who will help us become right with God, because he's saying God already did. Jesus already accomplished it. It's not possible, it's not necessary. Jesus Christ in his life, in his sinless life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, all of it, he says, has already been accomplished for us and made available to us. Verse 8, that's why he says, but what does it say? That the word is near you, he says, in your mouth, in your heart, right there. That is the word of faith, he says, which we preach. So the word of truth that brings salvation and righteousness through faith, Paul's saying in verse 8, it's not something we have to go searching for. It's not something that's difficult to obtain or religious labor will finally accrue for us. The reason Paul's trying to emphasize verse 8 is that God has made it so attainable. He's made it so easily accessible. We might say it's right there before your eyes. It's right there before your eyes. I mean, look at the phrases he's using in verse 8. Let what God's saying sink in. He says the word of faith. Just look at the phrases. It's near you. That indicates it's right there. It's attainable. It's accessible, available. It's right there, he says, in your mouth. We might say it's right on the tip of your tongue, man. It's right there. God's put it right on the tip of your tongue, What it takes to experience salvation to admit at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess that He is Lord. He says more than that, it's in your heart. The idea is it's right there. It's already resonating in your heart. God's saying to the person and anyone who's ever heard the truth of Jesus Christ, I remember being there before I got saved and even the hours when I was considering and the moments before I finally surrendered to Jesus and that's so true, it was near, it was on my tongue, it was in my heart and I was wrestling man because right in my heart it was resonating, you know this is true, you need this, stop fighting this. Choose to follow it. And it was resonating in my heart so strong as the Spirit of God is just bringing it home to us in a personal way. And He says it's the word of faith which we're preaching or announcing. Paul's point, He's trying to convey, is it's so simple. It's so available. God has provided it in such a simple way, and it does not matter, He says, whether a person's educated or uneducated. Salvation's still simple. It's something that a child can understand in the same way that the most intelligent PhD could grasp and understand. It's something, he says, that it's available and accessible whether you're familiar with the Bible and the things of church, he says, or whether you are completely unfamiliar with anything to do with church or God. It's simple, It's available to everyone. Faith in Jesus is simple. It's near. He's made himself available. And I think this, what a great indicator of how much God loves humanity. The way that Jesus came is such an indication that God loves humanity because he made himself approachable. So approachable that anyone can come at any time it's not complicated he's made himself so available so approachable that it's so simple to embrace him if our heart will surrender and trust jesus in the way that we need to that's why paul continues with his vein of thought verse nine that if look if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god's raised him from the dead you will be saved For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So Paul defines, verse 9 and 10 here, the simplicity of embracing or experiencing salvation from Jesus for our sinful condition. The Bible said of Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. Ephesians 2, the Bible says that we are saved by grace, through faith. That not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, it's not of works. But the genuine question, I think, sincerely is still in people's minds sometimes, even as they begin to grasp that, okay. But how do I practically experience that? I understand I need to be saved. I understand that Jesus saves me, I can't save myself. I understand now what it takes to get to heaven, but how do I go about the process then? i want to get saved what do i do how do i get saved how do i go about that process of receiving this gift of salvation that jesus is offering to me well paul says let me answer that for you verse nine if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. Other translations render that. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Or your translations say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that's the fuller, I think, more clearer, direct implication there. It's a confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting when you look at the term confess that's used there in the original language. It doesn't mean to just acknowledge a truth or to assent to a fact, it's a term that means to sincerely agree. When the Bible uses the term confess, or confession, it literally is a term that means to agree with. It means to agree with someone else, to say the same thing, is the actual idea. In other words, I agree with exactly what you say. I agree with your estimation, your declaration. I agree, and therefore I'm saying in a mission of agreement, the same thing. So, to confess, in essence, what's being conveyed is admitting what God says is right. About what? That I'm a sinner. That, that, that I do deserve eternal judgment. And, and I agree what God says and Jesus says about me being sinful. And that I'm destined for it and do deserve hell on my own. That's what I, what I righteously do deserve. It means agreeing that what is true that's declared about Jesus Christ as the Lord. That he is the son of God that He is the Savior, that He is the Lord over all who descended from His eternal throne to dwell among us and to die for us. And because He's supremely Lord and because I agree and confess that He is Lord, therefore, I respond to Him in that way. I make acknowledgement with my mouth of what I'm admitting and agreeing with in my heart in my belief and response to His Lordship over my life. I agree, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord unto me. He will be Lord unto me. And he says secondarily, verse 9 there, and if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. So again, a firm belief and trust, not only in the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins upon the cross, but also a firm belief and trust that Jesus rose back from the dead. That Jesus is alive out from among the dead. That He did clinically die when He suffered for our sins, but He miraculously rose again out from the dead and is alive. That Jesus is living today, and therefore, if Jesus is living today, I can, and I should, have an experience with Him. Because He is alive. I'm not following some. that I, I need to have an encounter with a living person, Jesus Christ, relate to him as a king, experience relationship with him. And I can follow him in submission and obedience as the Lord, the ruler over my life in an everyday personal experience and relationship. Notice as well here, it's not just acknowledging theological facts mentally and intellectually. And I think this is critical because I'm so glad that God, by his spirit, verse nine, used the words, look at it there, verse nine with me, believe in your head. What does it say there? Believe in your heart. Wait a minute. Believe in your heart. How do you believe? I think God's trying to convey something to us there. Most things are learned and processed. Aren't they in our heads mentally? We reason things out. We make decisions based upon logical, rational conclusions. We believe and disbelieve things from our mind as we reason out. But here the Bible calls, look what it says, to believe from the heart. To believe in the heart. And I think God's trying to drive home to us, granted our mind is involved in the process. That's not what I'm trying to say, that we should be mindless. The gospel is reasonable. The claims are, 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 are logical conclusions, they're, they're clear facts, historically, spiritually, theologically. Our mind is involved in the process, but when the conversion experience happens, there's something far deeper that happens in the soul of a person where they believe it wholeheartedly and they believe it from the depth of their being in their heart, and you put your whole trust, your reliance, and your confidence upon something as being utterly true for you, because you believe wholeheartedly, that is true, and I need it, and I want it, with everything in the depth of my being. So I like that he says, believe from your heart, and I think as well, don't miss as well, before we move on, there's a personal aspect of the experience that we have to have. Again, look verse 9 and sense the pronouns that God puts there. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, my parents believe that stuff. They take me to the church. They put me through the classes. They sprinkle the water on. My parents believe that stuff. Yeah, I'm, I kind of believe it too. No, God says, you need to come to a place where you understand it and you embrace it for yourself because you will stand before god and mommy and daddy won't hold your hand they can't hold your hand your spouse can't hold your hand no one can you will stand before god so he says there must come a time in your life when it becomes hear me real to you when it becomes real to you in your heart that you believe, that you confess, and when that kind of sincere personal faith transpires, look what he says, verse 9, you will be saved. Then you will be saved. Paul reiterates in verse 10 that experience, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and it's with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So when the heart personally surrenders in that belief and trust wholeheartedly, in Jesus for my salvation and I confess it personally as it's expressed to validate my faith. He says when that happens, verse 10, we receive a righteous standing before God, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're made right with God and righteous, which makes us acceptable to go to heaven. And we also then experience this eternal salvation and access into eternal life for our soul, becoming a child of God, indwelt with the Spirit, prepared for eternity. Isn't it interesting, verse 10 as well, to take notice, verse 9 and 10, how the Bible does, God makes it evident to us, ask for there to be confession from the mouth in the salvation process. Don't overlook that in verse 9 and 10. God does ask for there to be a confession of the mouth in the salvation experience. Because what we genuinely believe inside our heart of hearts and what we sincerely are committed to, we always will open our mouth and profess and validate. We do this on human levels, whether it's entering into contracts. You don't enter into a contract without it verbal, if not written, and then signed, sealed, and stamped from the notary. I want to validate and express, confess, I'm committing to this. I believe this. And we do that with human contracts and agreements and things that we enter into. We we do that in our stand on an issue. You know, you can talk to most people for a half hour, bring up politics, whatever. You can tell what they believe, what they sincerely genuinely believe. Because they'll talk about it. They will validate it with their words. It's just a human experience that takes place. I think the greatest example of this too is marriage. A person validates and authenticates their inward commitment that they're making to another person to enter into a relationship in a public way. That They have a marriage ceremony, even if it's with just two people. There is an aspect of the marital commitment humanly where there's a form of expression with the words to the person that you're making the commitment to, you're making a form of expression, and before other people that you are entering into this commitment from your heart in fullness. And I think God is just saying to us, why should there be anything less spiritually? eternally certainly would you agree ladies and gentlemen that god is at least entitled to that if if our marriage partner is entitled to that if human business contract certainly is not god entitled to look don't just say well i I believe no god says no if you believe it confess it to one other person in the midst of a, you acknowledge it publicly. There is an aspect where God says, this is a part of the process. That confession, yes, I choose to follow Jesus Christ. Yes, I've committed my life to Christ. It is a part, the Bible says, of this salvation experience. He goes on, verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So, Paul again emphasizes that salvation in Jesus Christ is offered on universal terms. He says it, it's universally available, it's terms and offered to all humanity. He quotes a second time here, as he did back in chapter 9, again from Isaiah 28, that whoever believes on Jesus will not be put to shame. Again, the Bible's clear. We're sinners. Our sin and guilt would make us shameful before a holy, righteous God in the purity of heaven. And the only way not to stand before God as the result of my personal sin and not be put to shame and disgrace for my sin and punished eternally is to believe upon Jesus Christ as the solution for the forgiveness of my sins to be taken away. And that Jesus has removed that sin from me and given me a righteousness that I need. The lesson the Bible was trying to convey is that faith and belief has always been God's plan. From as far back hundred years ago, Isaiah already saw that God has always weaved the truth through his word. That it would always be that man came to him and approached and received God's salvation through faith, through belief. Because that's universal to everybody. Everyone has that capacity. Underline that word there, verse 11, whoever, I like that word, whoever believes on him won't be put to shame. I, again, no matter who you are, and hear me this morning, no matter what you have done, no matter who you are or what you've done, you can come to God. You don't have to be ashamed. You can bring to God your baggage. You can bring to Jesus your background and all your failures And all your smut and sin and regrets and guilt and stains. And you can bring it all to him and say, there it is, Lord. I provide all the sin. And you do all the same. And no matter who you are, whoever, you can come to Jesus with all of your sins and regrets. And listen, and even with all your present issues and you can come to Jesus and whoever he says just as willing to believe upon him the invitation is freely offered revelation 22:17 says the spirit and the bride say come let him who hears say come and let him who thirsts come whoever desires let him take of the water of life freely that's why Paul says, verse 12, There, there's no distinction, no, no difference, he says, made between a Jew nationally or the Greek, an uh, in, in, in inference to anyone of another nationality, a, a Gentile. God doesn't exclude anyone as it relates to salvation. It doesn't matter if you're American or you're Iraqi or you're Egyptian or you're Chinese. God said it doesn't matter. It, it's available to anyone universally. I don't exclude, I don't love one nation or nationality over another. God saying anyone can come, all people must come the same way. It's available, access, relationship with God. And he says he is rich in mercy and grace to all who come upon him. God does not show distinction in salvation, which also reminds us of another critical thing, which is this. God will not offer special exceptions to anyone. Now, we do this as human beings all the time. Somebody's powerful, influential, wealthy, or they can do something for us, we'll give you an exception. Everyone else, they need to do this, but we'll give you a special exception to the MVP you know, spot. or you know. Per- God doesn't work that way. God universally makes it available to everyone and anyone, but God won't bend the rules for anyone. It does not matter how much power, influence you have, how important you are, or think you are, how much money you have, what you can do. God says, everyone, no distinction. It's available to all and God will hold the same terms of how to be saved through Jesus Christ for every person. Paul concludes verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He quotes there from Joel 2.23 reinforcing that God's desire and willingness is to save and rescue anyone who calls upon him to be saved. Let me address something here that I want to just emphasize at the latter part of our meshes here, and that is this, a repeated term that you see showing up in this section of Scripture. We've seen it many times now. Saved. Salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That indicates something. I need to be saved. I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. See, the truth of the matter is, there's a personal realization that I need to be saved that has to happen. Because if a person thinks that they're okay and they can get themselves out of their own jam, if they don't think they need help, they're not going to call for help. If you're broken down on the side of the road and you think, I don't need help, I can fix this myself, are you going to call a tow truck? Are you going to call a friend? I don't need help. I'll fix it myself. I can fix it myself. So a person doesn't call out for help until they first realize genuinely I need help. I need to call out for help. The same is true spiritually. It is imperative spiritually that a person come to a place where the Spirit of God convinces them you need to be saved. You need to be saved. Convincing them of their sinfulness, their depravity, the eternal damnation that genuinely looms up. They need to come to that place to realize I need to be saved that was what came to my heart, July 12th, 1992, that brought me to the place where then I realized I got to call upon the name of the Lord. I need to be saved. I think the implication whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved implies what it does, but the opposite is true as well. Whoever does not believe and whoever does not call upon the name of the Lord because they don't need, think they need to be saved, won't be saved. They'll be damned. They'll be lost. To not decide is to decide. It's to decide that you don't think you need to be saved. Listen, the only reason a person does not get saved by Jesus Christ is the same reason why a criminal can't find a police officer. Wait for it. You got it? And the only reason a criminal can't find a police officer is because they don't want to. They're not looking for him. Hey, this morning, if you're a Christian, if Jesus has saved you eternally, what's going on in your life presently? If he saved you eternally, whatever's going on in your life, can I encourage you this morning, call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Jesus, you saved me eternally. You've got to save me from this situation. Save me from my struggle right now. Just and call upon the name of the Lord. And if you're here this morning and you have never accepted Jesus Christ's salvation, can I beseech you by the mercies of God to realize it is a choice. God holds us responsible. You have a decision to make and God will hold you accountable. And I hope I accurately made it so evident It is so simple, but you are personally responsible now for the decision that you make of the God that you'll one day stand before. Let's stand together.